0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport and education, allowing you to focus on wellbeing, performance and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's pod. I'm super excited to go into year two of challenges that change us still in the Australian charts. I have cried so many times this week with the messages that I've received from you all they have been beautiful and so many of you have said that the biggest takeaway from the last two weeks was around how our bodies can remember. I feel so blessed to be a part of such an amazing community with you all and I am super excited about what our next 12 months might look like together. A quick reminder to get in touch with me if you are interested in running a DISC personality profiling workshop for your team this year. It is such a valuable tool to help us understand what drives and motivates human behavior and to create a framework for communication with ourselves and with others. Okay, guys, are you ready for this week? By now, you know that I don't like to have the same toned episode week after week. So I do my best to mix it up for you, and this week is no different. Today I'd like to introduce you to Jono Peekfield, who is currently the CEO of LifeEd New South Wales and ACT, supporting Healthy Harold and a team of 80 to deliver health, safety, and wellbeing education to over 280,000 kids every year. Life Ed is an institution in Australia and many people will remember their lessons from the Life Ed Educator and Harold, often the highlight of any school year. And to find out what they are up to, you can visit their website, lifeed.org.au. Jono shares with us his career backstory, which is really interesting and not what you would expect. We chat about how important it is to bring your authentic self to work every day the energy that it can take to mask who you really are. We talk about walking the talk in wellbeing and what the transition was like for Jono going from the corporate world to the not-for-profit land. This episode isn't based on one challenge, rather multiple little challenges along the way, like navigating when the board lets you know that you need to get results in the next three months or it might be time to part ways how to create a workplace culture in multiple locations and of course my favorite part of the episode how to get a boat off the Sydney harbour floor. We round off the episode talking about resilience, failure and the importance of investing in good friendships. It's time for you each to make your cuppa and come and join us in this conversation. Welcome, Jono, to Challenges That Change Us.
1: Thanks, Ali. Awesome to be here joining you today.
0: Jono, I love to start every episode with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular?
1: (laughs) It's a great question. I had a bit of a think about this one and came up with the kookaburra. And the kookaburra is always laughing. And that's how myself and our family like to behave, have fun and, and enjoy enjoy each other's company and, and have good laughs.
0: And I always think about kookaburras because they're often in pairs, right? And one starts laughing and you hear the other one. Is that what it's like at your family dinners?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a knock-on effect. And what kind of got me thinking about it was that my father, brother and I, back in the day, went on this event called the Shitbox Rally, which is a, a Cancer Council fundraising event. You get an old car, you have to buy for $1,000, do it up and basically go on this huge road trip for a week with, I think there was about 80 participants when we went and we'd thrown our swags on the roof and every time we'd pull up at a different campsite for the night, roll our swags out and have a beer or two and go and have dinner and meet people and we got the nickname as the Jolly Swagman uh, (laughs) because the three of us were always laughing and always sleeping outside under the stars in swags. So yeah, it's a, it's just an I think a, a nice way for for us to engage and laughter's infectious. So the Kookaburras can't help but smile when you hear a Kookaburra laughing.
0: Yeah, and we talk a lot about that on this podcast. I often ask people, and you'll get this question at the end, you know what or who in the world truly makes your belly laugh? Because it's almost impossible to be sad or feel like that alone feeling or that overwhelmed feeling when you're laughing. Like the physical act of laughing can just brighten up that moment instantaneously.
1: Yeah, most definitely. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said for, for laugh therapy, which pun intended was laughed off at first, but I think has a lot of legs and there's a lot of places that practice it.
0: Yeah, and just going back, talking about that rally that you did, it sparked my interest. So, you said you used to get, did you talk about the sort of cars that you drive?
1: So, we we had an old Ford Falcon, must have been an early 80s model. You didn't, you got to choose the vehicle you went in. So, you could have a maximum of three people, but the key was you couldn't spend more than $1,000 on it. And then about three to five hundred dollars on repairs. So you are allowed to get essentials like tires and brakes, obviously fixed, but you couldn't soup it up or do anything exciting with it. It had to be a shitbox.
0: Couldn't add aircon.
1: No, no aircon. And then yeah, you had to take all your gear for the week, and you were put in teams of four or five people, uh, four four or five cars, and within that, you'd hopefully have someone who had some form of mechanical knowledge. That certainly wasn't me. And, yeah, you'd head off. We started in Brisbane and finished in Darwin. I
0: was just thinking as you said that, if I had to pick three people, you'd make sure you had someone in there that was going to make you laugh and someone in there that could fix your car, right? They're like the two necessities if you've only got three people on your team.
1: Yeah, well, we certainly didn't have someone who could fix the car. Uh, we had plenty of laughter, so I suppose we, um, <laughs> we could trade that off for, <laughs> for the mechanics. But it was, it was such a good initiative, um, I'm fairly sure it's... <laughs> It's still going today, but, it, you know, every morning it's hilarious. You sort of wake up, hopefully hear a few kookaburras in the tree and uh, and there'll be, you know, six or seven cars, bonnets up, people underneath them, spanners out, <laughs> everyone just doing all their last-minute tinkering to get them through the day.
0: Just to get them started.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was a really cool concept.
0: And Jono, what was your fondest memory of that trip?
1: Probably... Being off the grid. So we started in Brisbane and went to Darwin and ran out of phone reception pretty quickly. And that was back when I was in my hardware days. And it was just nice to switch off and actually spend some really quality time with my brother and dad. You know, we spend a fair bit of time together as family, but never all day driving in a car, actually just being able to chat and yarn and then meet other people. So it was like that really quality time. With family and and we had a, a bunch of friends that came along with us, so it was just an awesome experience.
0: I imagine it's something that I know you've got little kids that you'd start to think about doing something like that again. Does that does it come up for you as a dad?
1: Yeah, definitely. We're, at the end of it, we sort of vowed that we try and do something like that every couple of years, but you know things get in the way and kids come along and it, it gets harder and harder. But you know we we definitely try and forge out time as a family and that's something I want to make sure that we continue to do with you know with my family now.
0: And Jono, we've brought you on today, obviously it's challenges that change us, but I thought initially it might be a really nice place to start with just kind of giving us a bit of a background on your career and and what's kind of led you to where you are today.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've probably had a a different career uh, in some ways where I've sort of shifted from the commercial sector into the not for profit sector. But I suppose, you know, uh, like all good careers, you start as a kid. I remember my first – I mean, I, I worked from as soon as I could be of assistance on the farm, uh, helping dad and his his father, you know, whether it's mustering and, or, or cattle work or fencing repairs or whatever. Never paid for it. I suppose I was paid in uh, – in good faith, <laughs> Mum and Dad looked after us. Um, it was just part and parcel of what you did. My first pay- paycheck was from cotton shipping out in Wee War in, in Central New South Wales, and that was awesome. You know, I went away with a couple of mates. I think I was only sixteen uh, at the time, and um, had a lot of fun. Worked super hard and hot, long days, but you know, nice to learn the value of money at, at quite an early age. But a lot of the work that we did was just contributing to. To the farm, uh, which was great. But in more of a career style, I uh, headed down to Canberra for university and worked for a little marketing firm there for six to 12 months. And a friend of mine that I was studying with at the time said, you know, no matter what you do, you need to be good at sales, uh, whether it's selling yourself, whether it's selling something else, whether it's looking at uh, any form of business has an element of sales in it, which sort of resonated with me at the time. And I was studying commerce psychology, looking at at sort of marketing and management, and I, I enjoyed people interactions. So I knew I wanted to get into something where I was around people and working with people. And when he said that, I started to look on the university intranet and this kind of random but what I thought was an awesome job came up as a a traveling screw salesman working for this company called Otter Group and they produced nails, screws, rivets, fasteners, like literal fasteners, nails and screws. And so I managed to, to snag this job with no experience in hardware and I got a car, a phone and had this huge territory to go and manage and I remember when I told my parents I was pretty pumped But at the time, I think they thought, mate, you've just done four years of university and you're going to start your career as a sales rep. And to me, it was genius and a lot of fun. But I think at the time, they just sort of thought, oh, well, we'll trust trust to see where this goes. And it was great. I absolutely loved it. I got out on the road, I was traveling all through New South Wales, knocking on the door of family-owned independent hardware stores. This was pre sort of the master's home improvement introduction and it was sort of the last year of true independent hardware stores through Mitre 10, home hardware, other buying groups but they were all family owned and so it was great to sort of get a good understanding of how family business operates and just seeing the intensity within those stores of how they work and the timings and their busy periods and quiet. And then when people are doing it tough, the impact that it has across the store and across multiple people. So, while I wasn't necessarily feeling some of the stresses that they had, quite often you would hear it and you would see it and you could see it town by town how things changed. And so, I took a lot away from that and I got to travel a lot and met a huge amount of people and sort of progressed reasonably quickly. I got an opportunity to move to Queensland and live on the sunny coast, which was pretty cool. So, left Canberra, packed my car up, took my screw salesman book and off I went to Alexandra Headlands and lived up on the beach for for 12 months there and then eventually moved into Brisbane and as sort of the state manager for, for Queensland. So, yeah, it was an interesting start. to to my career
0: yeah and also what I heard in that tell me if this is right but you also took a leap of faith right like you'd done this commerce psychology degree and then you're like no I'm going to go in this direction and see where it takes me and that take that actually takes a bit of courage
1: yeah and it was it was probably against uh some people's advice but once I got into it, I loved it and it was like a whole industry and sector that I didn't even kind of know existed. And again, it just came back like I was interacting with people every day and I was learning some really good skills. I was, I was very lucky that the company was quite innovative. The CEO and the national sales and marketing manager at the time, they, they ran on this vibe of excite and delight. So, it was exciting to like your customer. Every interaction, you want to leave them excited and delighted. And I loved that. Yeah. And I, I, still, I still use it. Like, I, I've taken it everywhere I go. They were very innovative in the way that they sold and marketed. So, Paul, who was the National Sales and Marketing Manager, had worked for Mars for ages. And, you know, in confectionery, they're always doing these big promotions. And I remember... Rocking up, uh, my first day week was down in Melbourne, and it was their annual Christmas party, and I'd just come out of college, so I knew, <laughs> I knew how to enjoy myself, and and college was a lot of fun, but I thought oh, I was stepping into the workplace, this will be quite serious, and it wasn't. They were just so friendly and open, and they, the biggest party, uh, you could imagine for a hardware company, and it was just this whole new world of how do we enjoy our work and make sure that everyone along the way is getting some form of enjoyment or interact, uh, positive interaction out of the experience. And that ethos for a business was, was really interesting and, and I think quite unique. And then they created this huge marketing campaign around the decking season called Decktober. Now there's Decktember and it, it's all sort of taken off, but no one was really doing it in the fastening section. And the first prize was a trip to Vegas. So you could buy a box of screws for five bucks and win a trip to Vegas. And, you know, we're talking a couple of thousand entries max. So it was pretty good odds. And, but they had these huge point of sale posters and it was all about off locations and really kind of looking at the five or seven P's of, of marketing and promotion and sales and really taking what I'd learned and putting it into practice, which is, you know, always the gap transitioning out of university or school into the workforce is quite often people don't explain and and show you how to put that stuff into practice. So, yeah, I think I was really fortunate that I joined a company with a great culture and quite visionary and innovative thinking and a really, really just fun environment to be in at quite an exciting time for hardware because hardware was transitioning out of this small sort of family-owned concept and then Masters Home Improvement came along with Woolworths and it was Bunnings versus, you know, Bunnings Coles versus Masters Woolworths and it just shifted. The whole sector shifted and then Metcash bought out Mitre 10 and, and now they've taken over Home Hardware and Home Hardware was all sort of merged in and all of a sudden it became FMCG. So, I got this amazing and probably rare experience over the years I was there of transitioning from quite an old school industry into a very state-of-the-art kind of process-driven industry and was lucky enough to, you know, through my career, progress and do some national account management work. So by the end of my time at at Otter Group, I was the national account manager for Woolies and that was a couple of years in. So they'd launched, they weren't the new kid on the block, they were having this massive rollout of stores And the negotiation around rebates and pricing and point of sale and stuff was pretty hectic because they weren't necessarily hitting the numbers they'd expected, but they were giving Bunnings a red hot crack. So just being able to interact with a company at a reasonably high level at that sort of scale and size and new adventure or new initiative was super interesting and saw the good, the bad and the the ugly in some of those negotiation phases.
0: And I'm also wondering as I'm listening to you, like there's a huge element in your story so far where you got to explore who you were in the workforce with that support. And I I think that's often missed. I mean, you tapped into that a little bit, but... I'm just imagining you going out there and just having so much support and having systems and structures in place and people that have got your back but they're letting you grow, they're letting you explore in a safe environment and, you know, I think we're missing the mark a lot these days with that. It's like just jump in and do it and work it out for yourself and there's no – you know, I just listening to it just sounds like such a beautiful experience coming into the workforce.
1: Yeah, it really was. Like I was very fortunate just to – kind of land that and you know i suppose take that leap of faith like you said yes. but then have and work it, hard work like, out yeah yeah, yeah. It i was, mean it you was put hard in the work. work yeah yeah um we were you know we were doing big days and there was there was definitely pressure there every sales role has pressure and w- we weren't by any means the number 1 company we were always chasing so there was definitely the pressure there but the energy the support my direct manager a guy rod brand was awesome in the way that he encouraged and supported but he never let you completely fall over but would let you learn lessons that you needed mm. to learn and mm. provide you insight and support when you, you needed it and would lead by example wasn't wasn't afraid to roll his sleeves up and get dirty and work hard himself so just it was just a really good you know i suppose having learnt most of my early lessons on the farm around work ethic and problem solving and it's not, you know, just because it starts raining doesn't mean you stop work for the day or just because something gets hard doesn't mean you're not, like you just, you don't have an option a lot of the time when you're on a farm. And so having a lot of that stuff reinforced in a really positive way in quite a unique environment and culture was, yeah, really exciting and allowed me to realise that, You could bring yourself to work and you didn't have to – like I think a lot of people get confused with themselves and then their work life and feel there has to be this distinction between the two. And no doubt in some circumstances that's appropriate, but like I'm a really big believer that you you should bring your, your true self to work and be able to enjoy yourself and have fun. Who doesn't want to enjoy what they do, you know, 70% of the time?
0: And it's hard to find contentment in however that shape or form that looks like or what that means for people if you're not coming with all of you, you know, because there's it it can feel for people that there's a shadow side or a side that people can't see or what what happens if they find out that part. Whereas if you're just coming as you and your authentic self, you know, you can just show up and give 110% as you in that role.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And- you know, there's some great articles around the amount of energy it takes to mask oh. who you really are. Yeah. So, you know, you're just working overtime trying to put on a front or trying to be someone else rather than just giving that energy and time.
0: I often say to people, imagine if you used all of this energy that you have towards being afraid or having anxiety or holding on to something that, you know, no longer serves you or having a mask. Imagine if you took that bucket of energy and put it into how you want to spend your day or being with the people you want to be with. Like we we use our like we constantly have this mismatch between where we want to go, who we want to be, and where we're actually putting our energy and time into. Don't you think?
1: A hundred percent. I think it's one of the biggest challenges that any organization, leader, team member faces is being able to just be your, your true self and for people to be comfortable with that and stop expending all this energy trying to be something for someone else or, or be something for your workplace that's not a natural fit.
0: Yep, or like the person sitting next to you, you know, I'm going to be an image of that person that you can be inspired by someone or, or love the way that they do things, but that doesn't mean that you need to take that on board all the time.
1: Exactly, and you know, there's you know, you've got to make sure that you're in the right, you're behaving the right way in the environment. But it doesn't mean mean you have to pretend. You can flex within who you are. Not saying you know, rock up to work in in party mode. There might be a time and place for that, but you, you've got to have a level of professionalism. But being professional and trying to be someone different, there's there's a fine line between that and getting it wrong. Just it can be exhausting for people.
0: Yeah. And that wasn't where your career stopped, though, was it?
1: No, I got, I got. Used to get a fair bit of grief actually about being the travelling screw salesman from from friends, (laughs) but um, probably fair enough too. Um, But yeah, it gave me, um, yeah, it gave me some really, really good introduction to the workplace. But my big sort of transition happened when a friend of mine, Seb Robertson, started an organisation, a a youth mental health organisation, called Petir which is Logo's a a big blue elephant, which some people listening hopefully are familiar with. If not, I'd really encourage you to to jump online and and Google it, B-A-T-Y-R. And he started that because of his own experience with mental ill, ill health at university. And when he, I suppose started sharing the experience he'd had at uni. It really kind of rocked me, I suppose, because he was a, a really close friend of mine. He, I emceed his wedding. He was a groomsman at mine. Uh, we've been really close mates for ages, and he kind of unraveled this story where he'd had severe depression during college and no one knew about it. And, you know, we spoke earlier about wearing masks, and it's one of the, the big challenges around when people are, are really suffering with their mental health, and, and especially sort of 10 years ago, it, it was more common that people would just hold it in, mask it, walk out the door, be a different person, and Seb openly comments and, and talks about that experience, whereas behind closed doors at college, he was in a really bad space. And to be a good friend of someone and hear that is like, wow, I mean, is this? who else is this, this sort of happening with and, and why? And you know obviously stigma has has been a big piece around mental health and I think we've come a huge way in the past decade around breaking down some of those barriers and and getting people more informed and Batia I think's had a huge part to play in that along with many other organizations but yeah back in 2012 2013 Seb was sort of starting to get going by himself and I was still working in hardware and traveling a fair bit and We just sort of had this crossover period where he came and crashed on my couch for a couple of days while he was going to a conference and basically unraveled all the challenges he was having starting this organization and the fact that it was nearly impossible to get funding and, you know, he was trying to do everything himself and he was in startup mode and I was just like, whoa, geez, this is such a good concept that, you know, I I think has such – powerful messaging but here's this one person who it's nearly breaking him to try and get it to to realization and so you know just tried to help out here and there along the way and then in 2014 he rang me up and just said look we've got a couple of new funders on board and we need to really look at how we scale and grow um would you be interested in jumping on board as, you know, a partnership manager, business development? And I jumped at it and so left my illustrious screw salesman <laughs> career and set up shop with one of my best mates. And, yeah, it was it was definitely the best decision I ever made. But it was tough because, you know, I took about a 50K pay cut. I sort of bounced between two roles for a little while to sort of wrap up what I was doing in the hardware sector and, and then jump on board and, You know, one of the things for me was uh, I I loved what I'd done in the hardware sector, but I probably got to a point where I was cruising a little bit and not necessarily challenging myself too much. And I I looked at this and thought, geez, what's the hardest sales environment you can be in? And it was not-for-profit land. Uh, You know, there's something like 40,000, 50,000 registered charities all vying for a fairly limited bucket of of funds, whether that be government, philanthropic or – or everyday people, you know, putting donations down. And I thought, geez, if I can have a crack at this and see how I go, then that's a a true test of the skill that I'd sort of set out to develop. And I also thought, you know, it's an exciting way to be able to engage with different sectors and different leaders on a different level, you know, as, as opposed to, just in the hardware sector, I I could kind of start to knock on doors of all these different sectors and get a bit more exposure to to what else was out there. So yeah, it was was really interesting.
0: And when you decided to make that change, were there some hurdles for you to get past? Like I would imagine, like you said, when you finished uni and you went out, as a traveling screw consultant, you know that you said that there were people that had said to you, like, "Is this where you meant to be when you finish uni?" Did you have that same kind of conversation with people around you in your inner circle when you moved from the like commercial world into non-gov?
1: Almost identical. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, a lot of people were, you know, not only that I was moving out of you know a pretty well-paying job where I had really good career prospects into not-for-profit, it was the fact that it was into a not-for-profit that had three staff members, no guaranteed funding, no guaranteed future in the mental health space, which was still being explored and understood at that point in time. So,
0: And with your best mate. And and with my best
1: mate, exactly. It was like, you know, are are you trying to find more reasons for something not to work and put them all together? It was like the perfect cocktail of – uh, opportunity for, for things not to work out but that was the exciting part of it and you know at, at that point in time I didn't have a family I was single you know I was in a place where I could throw caution to the wind and the idea of building something with one of your best mates and I was just like you know if it doesn't work it it doesn't matter it's not a great outcome but we'll go somewhere else but if I turn around in 50 years' time and go, geez, I wish I'd had a crack at that. Or, you know, what? What if we'd done something about it and hadn't? Then you'd be kicking yourself. So I, I knew I could sell. I, I knew I could. Uh, I had a career option in the hardware sector, but I just saw this this concept, this idea, this opportunity, and I was like, far out. Imagine if in 20 years' time I can look back and say I contributed a small part of that change piece—that's um, what was exciting to me, and also taking a lot of those learnings I spoke about earlier and applying them in a startup scenario. Like you, we—we we got to build a business. Like that's—that's that's not commonplace.
0: No, and it's like you use the word exciting, and that's the word I use challenging and exciting when you're in a startup phase. And it's the unknown, you're navigating the unknown, and you have to take risks and make decisions without having any kind of data to lean on.
1: Exactly. And it was pretty tough in that first 12 months. And I came in at a good period. Like Seb had absolutely busted himself for three or four years just to get to a point where he could start to get a few people involved. And there'd be weeks where we had no school bookings. So there was like five or six of us. I mean, I was just constantly out trying to trying to get cash, but no one knew who we were. We were evidence-based, so we'd looked at all the research and Seb had looked at all the research and, and stuff uh, and worked with some really good professionals in the space to come up with this concept of sharing lived experience in a safe way two kids to break down barriers around stigma and then provide them with ways that they can look after their mental health and well-being. So it was giving them insight into some of the challenges, breaking down some of those barriers and opening up the conversation and then empowering people with a a way to manage and look after their well-being. So it, it was a really good structure but, you know, it was so early days that we didn't have this sort of big research pool. And we were we were taking it and implementing it. Whereas at that time there seemed to be a lot of people doing research and saying what the problem was, and very little people getting in and doing something about it. But then when you start that journey, no one wants to fund it because it's too risky.
0: Mm. And there's no there's no society language around that. Like when you're talking about it, it's like people weren't aware we're starting and we're still in baby steps, but we're starting as a society. To have a little bit more understanding and awareness around mental ill health, but back then, mm. I mean, a lot of people didn't even know what the words were.
1: Exactly, and you know, even Are You Okay Day was in fairly small doses, whereas you know, Are You Okay Day is huge now. But back then, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a big thing. It wasn't. It was that stigma piece that just was so hard to to break down. And it meant when you went to funders, they were – and people were quite cautious. It was kind of probably a little bit like vaping recently. It's like if you introduce a topic, is it going to make it worse? Are you educating people about something that they otherwise wouldn't know? And so, there was this fear factor around talking about mental health because then some people perceive that as going, oh, well, you'll you'll create issues as opposed to just – get a better understanding of what's actually happening. Mm. And so we've learnt a lot of, over that journey.
0: And I think the three areas I think of straight away when you say that is vaping, sexual assault and suicide. The fear of ha- going in and having the conversation, are we opening up a can of worms that we won't be able to close?
1: Exactly. So, I mean, n- I, I don't think we are. No, neither um, do I. No, and no, and every- no. Everyone, what, everyone has not. their <laughs> opinion, yeah. But, you know, even at Life Ed, we did hold off running vaping content. And and that's, you know, probably a, a very a very different to uh, sexual assault or or suicide. But we held off for a while because there was the risk that we would actually be the ones introducing it. Whereas now I think it's a bit more commonly known. So we've got to get in. But it's a hard trade-off because how early do you get in to try and stop it versus have a slightly negative impact by doing that. But ultimately the education, the awareness piece is what is key. And Mm. Batir were really early in in going into schools and and really unpacking and talking about this kind of stuff.
0: You mentioned earlier, Jono, about the challenges you faced with getting funding for Batir. Are you able to talk a little bit more around how you guys did that?
1: Yeah, it it was a really interesting journey. And I suppose when I started, I sort of had some ideas around knocking on the doors of corporates and I wasn't Uh, necessarily a great writer so I didn't really want to get bogged down in grant writing and Seb and I and Sam Reshorgi who sort of transitioned into CEO role spent hours just knocking on doors and and meeting with people and trying different proposals and I actually copied a lot of the way we used to pitch in hardware to like the Woolworths or the Bunnings and replicated it for our pitches at Bateer. But the piece that we were always missing was the research or the, the evidence base. And and we started to collect and collate feedback from students. And then we'd always be looking at um, what was the latest research and stuff that was out there to to build into that. But ultimately we were we were just showing people that we were actually trying to put into practice some of the core things that were coming out. And I distinctly remember it was about nine months in and I hadn't had much success. So there hadn't been much we'd had very little extra funding come in and one of the board members basically pulled me aside after a day's work and pretty much said, look, you've got three months and at the end of the 12-month period, if you can't bring anything in, we're probably just going to have to part ways and I know that's blunt, but that's the reality and I knew that conversation was coming and I was very aware of it, like the last thing you want to do is join your mate's charity.
0: As a great sales rep. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Can't get you any money. (laughs) So, it
1: was – Pressure. It was just, yeah, it was, it was, but good, good pressure. And, Mm. and again, you know, it's just, you can back out and go, oh, it's too much. I'll move on. Or you double down and go, right, let's really think about this. And we'd go to the opening of an envelope. We were just trying to be present and have our, our brand and our faces in as many different rooms where people were talking about mental health, mental ill health prevention as possible. And then kind of just got into the uh, a handful of grants and spent three or four months really trying to craft how we told our story and using like trying to really share the story. And that's, I think was the shift is we went from pitching an idea to sharing a story and then the story of young people who came through and we'd start to bring young people with lived experience along to some meetings. And if we were applying for a grant, I'd do a lot of legwork behind the scenes with whoever I could get in contact with at that organization to make sure that our grant just didn't sit on and they were just reading it, but they knew who we were. They knew what we did. They'd heard some you know, stories or they'd had the opportunity to come and see a program. And I think at about the 11-month mark or just before the the board meeting where I was pretty much neck on the chopping block, it just clicked. I don't don't know exactly what it was, but it just clicked. We won three or four grants in a row and pulled some cash in and that allowed us to step up the delivery a little bit and we had some good success uh, actually with Catholic schools. So we, we worked quite closely with a bunch of Catholic schools and built the student numbers over that sort of period and we just had this three months where we were in the zone. And we were delivering more school programs. We started to get a bit of cash in the door. We started to sort of – people started to see us and come to us for comment. We ran a, a big sort of symposium where uh, the Channel 9, I think, covered, and we had some professionals sort of work with us. What's
0: a symposium?
1: It was oh, – maybe a symposium is the wrong way to describe it. We had, it was basically a – it was an interactive Q&A where we had invited the public to come and sit in and we had a QA panel and then a couple of young people sharing their story, but it was mediated by channel nine or channel ten or someone and basically it was exposing all the work that we were doing and trying to demonstrate how it was impacting on young people and sort of a big showcase of showcase is a bad word, but basically promoting that, you know, we need to be talking about mental health. And putting it front and centre, and the media came along, and we had some expert panels and and that type of stuff. So, and that all just kind of aligned. And, you know, momentum is an amazing thing. Once you start to build that momentum, and it just rolled and rolled and rolled. And it was still tough, and we still got a lot of questions about, you know, research and stuff. But by that stage, because we'd started to see more schools and more students, we had more feedback. We could start to plug that in and work with other partners and we'd start promoting Beyond Blue and Reach Out and Headspace. And we'd give out little cards to all the students with all the contact details and our sort of core messaging. So that if they got into trouble, they had the lifeline number in their wallet or they could jump onto reachout.com and, and look up some services and support. And so all of a sudden these organizations realized that we we're essentially their, their media marketing team promoting the work, the great work that they're doing and that we weren't trying to compete. We were trying to support and, you know, build that awareness. And then, yeah, we had 12 months where, so that was sort of the first 12 months, we just got a bit of cash in the door and then we really started to scale. But there were challenges with that because we had this incredible sort of small team of eight to 10 um, sort of part-time people and this amazing culture. And it was sort of predominantly based out of Sydney. And if we got a Brisbane school that a handful of us go to Brisbane and deliver it. And we were all doing everything. So I was delivering programs. I was trying to support with fundraising campaigns, doing the fundraising, uh, setting strategy. Like it was everyone just did everything. And then as you start to scale, it's how do you replicate that culture but allow others to create their own culture within it. So we set up Victoria and then we set up offices in Brisbane. And then all of a sudden, instead of having 10 people – You've got 25 and then it was 30 and maintaining that momentum and pace without burning anyone out and whilst creating a culture and allowing that culture to evolve without diluting – was was really challenging but a lot mm. of fun.
0: What did you learn from that, you know? This is definitely not the area I thought we'd go down in this podcast, but I'm not letting you get <laughs> not answer these questions. But like how did you what did you learn? Because that is I mean there's some gold nuggets in there for anyone that's running a business, being a leader in a position where they've got to grow and scale.
1: Well again, the CEO at the time, Sam Ref Shorgi was a real culture champion. And we really, from the early days where there was only a few of us, set that example of show up as your true self. Uh, so it sort of keeps coming back into that, that theme. And we allowed, you know, we were dealing with some really heavy topics. So Batir would run training programs for young people, essentially over two days, teaching them and working with them on their story so that they could share it, but safely so that there there wasn't triggering instances and and there's like really unique ways of sharing a story that can have a really powerful impact but leave someone feeling empowered and not helpless but working through that with someone is really intense for the first time and there would be people coming up who who hadn't really shared their own personal journey with anyone and all of a sudden sitting in a room with 10 strangers so there was some really heavy moments, but we we wanted to be the positive, um, vibrant, hopeful organisation, not the doom and gloom mental health charity, and that was a really key part of what we did is that it was, it was upbeat and it was promoting wellbeing and how to kind of. Deal with challenges and difficult situations and big topics but be able to bring ourselves and and be able to enjoy the process and know that we're getting to a better place but there's going to be hard days along the way and I think having that, you know, we had a ping pong table in the office so we we had a dartboard and a basketball hoop and there was a lot of opportunity for people to Debrief and to have some downtime. And then there'd be times where we'd be, you know, writing grants till midnight to get it in on time for submission. But we'd go out as a group and have dinner, or we'd go and celebrate lunch and we celebrated success stories along the way. And everyone talks about it. It's really hard to do it when you hit a success milestone. Naturally, you just go, right, what's next? So we would purposely take the time to stop. And celebrate and go and have some fun, because if we couldn't have fun, what were we? What was the point of what we were doing?
0: Yeah, and and what are you role modelling?
1: Yeah, and we had this this amazing person, Doctor Happy. So uh, Doctor Tim Sharp runs the Happiness Institute, and he was the Chief Happiness Officer of uh, Batir. I love that. Which is such a cool. I love title. that. Yes. Yeah and he'd come in and he'd run sessions pretty regularly around how to look after our own well-being and you know what's what is happiness and and stuff and he's so pragmatic and chilled out and just honest and raw and he's got his own story which he he sort of shares and he just he helped build that culture but in a safe way so he he allowed us to put stuff in place where everyone was looking after their own well-being And naturally, an organisation like that attracts a lot of people who've had challenges with their mental health. Um, And so, you know, there were people along the way who, who needed a lot of support and needed to be able to take time out um, so, we had a, a walk the talk well-being policy, which was pretty powerful.
0: Yeah. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how valuable this will be for people to hear because really it was before the times. I don't know if I can say that, but it really is what I'm listening to now is what everyone's catching on to. And I work so much in the corporate industry right now about how do we get what you're talking about. And often it's because it's intangible. You don't see it. Like when you walk into a company that has a a culture like what you're describing you feel it but sometimes it's very hard to say this is why or this is what but listening to you it really gives a great sense of how the psychological safety was set up for the team the time and energy and resources were put into the team people were aware of it you had some fun some play but some seriousness like up till midnight doing grants but able to have a doctor happy and you know like I can really hear it as you're talking some of those really core principles in what makes a culture vibrant energetic passionate disciplined like all of those things but allow people to be and show up as their own self.
1: Yeah, I think at the core of it is showing up as your own self, but you've got to have structures in place to allow people that freedom. The other piece of that sort of the walk the talk well-being policy that and Sam Rafshogi the CEO at the time really drove this was take your well-being leave before you feel down, not to recover prevention is better than cure and he led by example if he was you know had 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 a stressful couple of days he'd be like i'm coming in mid morning i'm going to go have a surf i just need some time to to, to, to chill out and so by him doing that then everybody could do it and we encourage people It was like hey you've you've had a big you've had a big weekend or you went to an event all all weekend just take a half a day just go and chill out do something for yourself
0: and i think sometimes there's a fear there of or a lack of trust in that if you give people space they're just going to take advantage of it but you know i think that's where it comes back to that culture you're building and when you talk about how hard and how how hard you guys worked and how passionate you were and people were really clear on their why as to w- A, why they were working for you, and B, what they were trying to achieve and the impact they were trying to have. You didn't have to question that. By the sounds of it, you didn't have to question if someone took half a day off. Are they going to bring their A game when they walk in the door?
1: Yeah, definitely. Look, there were definitely points where people probably took advantage of it, but maybe didn't realise. Because we had a lot of young people coming through the organisation. Sometimes, and most of the time, was their first place of work. So they walked into an incredible environment. That wasn't normal. Um, it wasn't normal and therefore the challenge that we then faced was how do you continue this because it's the right thing to do and it has fantastic benefits without people expecting it's done for them and becoming entitled. So where do you find that middle ground? And there, there were times and that's that was part of that growth in – you know, Sydney office might do something, but then there's only four people in the Brisbane office. So how do they replicate a culture and get the same as we do?
0: Did you solve that question?
1: Well, we, it, was, it was pushing it back to them. It's like, well, we had an office in Sydney with four people and had an awesome culture. So create your own, like feel empowered, drive your own, build your own culture that fits into this. But don't expect someone coming from Sydney is going to create that for you. Culture is about the people in the room at the time getting on a, on a on a good wavelength and working out how they want to operate, how they want to interact, how they want to turn up to work. And that might shift in different offices and spaces.
0: Yeah. And at different times of the company's
1: growth. Yeah. As the different state offices opened up, they had their own challenges around, you know, state-based funding or rollout of programs. And, you know, one might be – leading the way and the other might be struggling and that that creates different tensions and stuff but overarching is like you know look after your well-being look after each other make sure you're enjoying your work and having fun but work hard like this place is built off really hard work
0: Mm. Mm. and Jono I find this sometimes in interviews and right now I'm sitting here going I don't want to ask you to move on from this conversation um <laughs> so this is coming out through gritted teeth but we yeah. haven't even got to where you are now you know we haven't even spoken about life ed for anyone that can see um any of the stuff that we put up on Facebook in our Facebook group challenges that change us you'll see Jono's got the shirt on at the moment so I'm really wearing and I want to honor the space of where you're working now and what that looks like and and how you got into that as
1: well yeah, um, yeah, it's easy to get, to get go down a rabbit warren.
0: A, a rabbit warren that I love yeah. and am passionate <laughs> yeah, about and spend yeah. every day working in. I could as- absolutely selfishly, <laughs> sorry guys that are listening to all my beautiful audience uh, and listeners, we're, uh, we're just getting off on our own little tangent here. <laughs> Two CEOs having a yarn.
1: <laughs> uh, look, I think um, definitely what I realised at Batir is how much disadvantage and inequity there is and <laughs> that's – that was something I was like, well, you know, we're doing a really good thing. And my wife actually then, she fell pregnant. And so we actually took some some time out. We were living in Sydney and moved back to Urella near Armadale, New South Wales. And I was helping dad with the drought in 2019. We, like everyone, got absolutely smashed. And so I moved to two days a week with Batyr and was, was working on the farm pretty much full time feeding at, at that point. And during that period, sort of started to think, all right, well, I've been a, a bateer for about four years. I'm going to start thinking about what might be next, but had no intention of sort of changing job and happened to be looking through LinkedIn. And this job ad for Healthy Harold Life Education's CEO for New South Wales popped up. And I was like, whoa, that is a blast from the past, mm-hmm. you know, like most people hadn't heard of from or of uh, healthy Harold and Life Ed for probably the best part of 20-odd years.
0: Mm, but still remember it, right? Like, haven't heard of it, but like, yeah. I remember that.
1: Exactly. It's part of the magic, and I'm deviating here, but, you know, <laughs> you, in primary school you have a full-time teacher from kindy to year six. So you have six different teachers who take you for the entire year. I reckon the average person would struggle to name more than three or four of those primary school teachers, and they have a huge impact on your life. Harold comes once a year for six years, <laughs> if you're lucky, and nearly wow. everyone, exactly.
0: <laughs> so true, so true.
1: That's the magic of, you know, really powerful, engaging education is that you may not remember all the lessons, but you link that with a health, uh, like healthy lifestyle association and that yeah. is, is powerful, but we'll get to that. So, um, yeah, I sort of threw my hat in the ring and ended up, going through the process and got a job offer which i was super excited about but had this sick feeling in my stomach of how i was to gonna tell, tell seb <laughs> who's the chair of the oh, board
0: i feel sick at the moment as you're telling it my heart's oh, just broken was,
1: and i was just coming to the end like i would sort of agreed with patir they've been super supportive to allow me to come and, and work on the farm and we'd just done this big pitch government pitch which was the first and we'd just found out we'd won it. So it was the, like first sort of million-dollar-plus grant we'd ever won and and then, yeah, I got this job and I was coming back and Lifehead were like, well, we, we need you to start now kind of thing. And I'd sort of said trying to negotiate a, a bit of leeway and it took me an entire four days to get the courage to call Seb and then the, the CEO at the time, or who's now the CEO, Nick Brown, and – he and I had been working together really closely with Seven. I was just like, oh, it was, it was tough. But we well, ripped the Band-Aid off and they were awesome as with everything. And the beauty is that we can look at collaborating and, and working together and chatting now so yeah just
0: on that you know nothing like a bit of deviation in this episode how did you rip the band-aid off like you know because obviously you were sitting with it with a heavy heart for four days what did did you just count three two one go or did you just someone give you a boot up the farm <laughs> or how did you actually go from <laughs> stressing for four days
1: Caitlin, my wife was like mate they'll understand just pick up the bloody phone and call him and I did and yeah, I mean, Seb was Seb was awesome with it.
0: And it's so often the case, isn't it? But that is why it was so hard because you, it sounds like you had so much respect for him personally and professionally. So, you wouldn't want to hurt him.
1: No, exactly. And, you know, I, I'm always a big believer that there's no individuals ever bigger than any business and and that's really important. So, it, it shouldn't matter who in the business moves on at any particular time, that business sh- or organization needs to be set up so it's strong enough to, to carry on. And I knew that I, there were people who could do my job better. Like I think uh, I was really proud of the work that I'd done to get it to a point, but I also recognized that I probably wasn't the one to, to go in that partnership space and, and fundraising space, take it to the next level. And we'd put on a fantastic partnership manager, Lucy Steggles, just before, and, and her and I were working together to sort of build it. And I was really confident that her and, and Nick Brown, the CEO, would take it to the next level. And that it was sad because there was an emotional connection. And, you know, I'd love the culture and I'd help build it. And I felt like really at home there. But everything was set up for them to be able to continue. And unfortunately, you know, it was nine, 12 months later, COVID hit. So it was a rough period for everyone. But yeah, ripping that Band-Aid off was was definitely tough.
0: Mm. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents, and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely actions so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing with children increasingly connected via technology the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free Project Health Check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance, and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And why Life Ed? You know, if you, you've you just explained to us this phenomenal culture, right? I was sitting there inspired. I don't know about everyone else, but I was sitting there thinking about all the things I can do for my team or all the things I'm currently not doing. So why the shift? What grabbed your attention?
1: Yeah, it was, I, I think I'd sort of touched on just before that, you know, you see the inequality and the disadvantage when you're constantly going around to schools and, and delivering. And, one of the things that resonated about Life Ed is one, I had this awesome memory as a kid of the program, but I knew that through Batir there was still an earlier age where we could have a really positive impact on young people's well being without them even knowing that what we were teaching them was having an impact on their well-being. So it's one thing to go in, in year nine and destigmatize mental health and mental ill health. It's another thing to give them the coping strategies in from kindergarten to year six to make sure they've got the right platform to be looking after their wellbeing when they hit high school. So that for me was like a big part of why I jumped at that particular, I mean, I was super lucky to to get the gig, but that's why I sort of pushed probably earlier than I otherwise might have for something else. So I, At the time, I was sort of looking at different things, just trying to understand what else was out there that might be of interest. Um, I wasn't actually even looking – definitely wasn't looking for a CEO gig. Uh, I didn't really think that's something I necessarily wanted to do. But then when it came up, I just thought, oh, wow, what a great next step to be able to actually have a crack at being a CEO and see if that's something that that I enjoy. But more importantly – have an influence at such a young age.
0: And in the preventative space, it's a very different space.
1: And I suppose having, we'd just had our, our first son, uh, Harrison, and so I was like, well, jeez, I probably need to scrape up on some parenting skills here and get some really good basic knowledge. So it was just kind of felt like a nice transition. And life ed, we, we sort of start at three, so we actually work with early learning centres. So I was like, "What a what a great way to have a really positive impact on a mass scale on well-being and, you know, if LifeEd and other organisations are nailing it at that point and Batir nailing it through high school along with all the other, you know, there's a million pieces in this puzzle of well-being but if we get it right from that early age, then hopefully one day we don't need a Batir mm. and that's the ultimate goal.
0: To kick your mate out of business. Yep. Exactly. Well, to put ourselves <laughs> no, yes. out of business
1: as well. You know, if if we're educating each generation are getting better and better at learning how to look after their their health, their physical, social and emotional health and well being, then we shouldn't we shouldn't have to exist. Now we're a long way from that, but that's the end goal. Like, how good would it be to put a not for profit out of business because the service isn't needed?
0: Absolutely. As opposed to
1: you can't get it funded. Mm,
0: mm, definitely. And I also think the mm you know, as you're saying that, it's really about those foundational blocks so that when adversity hits throughout your life, it might feel like, it might feel overwhelming in that moment, but you've got something really solid to to fall back on or to anchor you. And that's going to be a toolkit full of strategies that you learn at a very young age or language that you learn at a young age or understanding and awareness and support from a young age. And I think sometimes, our teenagers are out there on a twig and they don't have that trunk of the tree to come back to, so that it just snaps and falls over.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, and, and everyone gets a slightly different experience uh, and resilience is a – you can't sort of teach resilience. It's through building experience and, and having a crack at things, having a go at different opportunities even though they might not work out and building that pool of experience, good and bad. Experience doesn't have to be everything working for you. The, the Most of the experiences I've learned from have been the the failures and, and stuff-ups where, you go, know, all right, well, next time, I'm going to make sure I don't do that particular thing because I know where it leads and I know what strife it gets me into. So I think, you know, this, this line between protecting but also encouraging our young people to get out and have a crack and, and do different things and being absolutely fine with failure. The, the more we can just accept that failure is a fantastic part of growing up, learning, being resilient, and that that's from a business point of view as well. You know, there's a lot of talk now about embracing failure and learning from it, and I, I think, you know, it's something we're trying to do at Life Aid. I think we, we did it reasonably well at Batyr is – Fail, fail fast and learn. Uh, My old man always used to say growing up, you know, firstly, it's only an F up if you can't fix it in an hour, uh, which was a bit of an ongoing gag at the farm. But it's like, you know, learn from your mistakes. But if you're making mistakes three or four times over, then there's an issue. You're not learning. So there's nothing wrong with making a mistake. You know, you'd be like, no problem with that. He he never, never roused on us for doing anything that, we did once. If we did it second time, we'd be like, okay, third or fourth. It's like, all right, well, now you're the one who's, you know, what what's the issue here? Because nothing wrong with the first time.
0: And John, I'm not gonna let you get away with it that easy. What are some of the lessons that you have learnt along the way? Is there a time or an experience that you can think of that has helped you get to where you are today or has given you a very valuable lesson?
1: Definitely a lesson. I would say this hasn't helped me get to where I am. <laughs> um, but it's created a lot of uh, laughter points for friends and family. <laughs> I used to own a boat with a couple of mates when I was living in Sydney. It wasn't a flash boat. It was a like a forty foot old rusted out fishing trawler that we bought between four of us
0: on brand for this, you know, yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: and it was just it was hilarious just sequence of events so we we just bought it uh, had settled huge storm was sitting up at pitwater rocked up one of the first times i hadn't even seen it turned up and it was sort of half sunk and uh, i don't even know what had happened but the basically the the bilge pumps weren't working and it, the rain had filled up internally sunk it just enough to basically ruin all the electrics, but the motor still worked. So we kind of got it working, got it down into Sydney Harbour, and then just – we just kept having issues. And and I think Dad said to me, the best two days of owning a boat are the day you buy it and the day you get rid of it. And I was like, geez, Dad's a very optimistic person. I was like, that's probably the most negative thing I've ever heard you say, Dad. (laughs) And he's like, well – just see. Good luck. And <laughs> <laughs> it was one one thing after another. Like we and and we went in and did it all ourselves. So we'd Google. You know, how to plumb a toilet in, you know, what do you do when a solenoid breaks?
0: (laughs) And you're wondering where we went wrong? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Had friends coming and going and we were constantly taking rust out of it and cutting out and putting new windows in. And it was a lot of fun for four people who had no idea what they were doing. And because it was such a massive boat, it was super expensive. To get it insured, you had to basically dry dock it, have it inspected, and then, and to dry dock a boat is basically lifting it out of the water, and it was going to cost us like thousands of dollars. So, lesson one was spend the money and get the insurance, which we didn't. So, we just ran the gauntlet on the insurance piece. And then I was at Batir at the time and about to pitch to our largest funder. I was preparing a pitch for our largest funder on, on the Friday and received a call from one of the owners going, is anyone out on the boat? I can't see it. And I sort of <laughs> ignored it. And, then, <laughs> and the guy whose name it was in was away. And anyway, nothing came back and then get a call at lunchtime be like, I, I've just gone, but I can't find the boat and no one's on it. So, it was like a fair bit of panic happening. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, long story short, we hired a dinghy and basically cruised in and out of every little harbour site <laughs> uh, in Sydney Harbour and eventually got to where – because we thought, oh, look, it snapped, it's mooring and floating around somewhere. Anyway, got to Little Series Cove where it was it was moored and it was sitting up on the beach, this 10 ton or 10 plus ton boat beached, on like – and it was just a point in time where I like to pride myself on being able to come up with creative solutions for things and i was blank absolutely nothing and anyway so we decided that night we were going to get it back wait till the king tide came back in <laughs> rang up a couple of mates and it was like 8 30 at night and <laughs> we were just stumped and I was like look I'm in a real pickle here I need anyone I can get to come and help dig this thing out and try and get it back in the water and all of them said absolutely I'm coming so it was like a great display of mateship but what I later realized is they were all texting behind the scenes just being like there's no way I'm missing this this is the funniest thing that's ever happened I want to make sure I'm getting a photo of it so, all the mates <laughs> came down in droves, we're digging it out of the sand and then we had a little another little boat towing it and then eventually at about 12.05, we were like, this thing's not working. So, we just got in, started it up and just jammed it into reverse and just basically sat there for about what felt like an eternity, was probably only two minutes, just flooring this thing in reverse and eventually just... Started to scrape out, and then boom, out it goes, and we got it remoored and all the rest. And then, basically, twelve months later, almost identical thing happened again. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Lesson not learnt. I think this oh. was a, supposed to be. What lessons did you learn? Not what exactly. uh, mistakes exactly. did you make time and time and time again.
1: <laughs> So, we, we sort of blamed the, the bloke who put the mooring down um, <laughs> the first time.
0: When in doubt, blame someone else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Still didn't get insurance though. <laughs> And so we got the the rope extended so it could handle the – because most of them are little fiberglass boats sitting around there, not like these big, heavy trawling, old fishing trawlers. Anyway, yeah round two, another big King Tide, sitting at work, can't see the boat, same kind of thing. And I was meant to be heading to Brisbane to go and watch the Wallabies or something. It was a Friday. I was like, oh, no, again, hide a dinghy couldn't find it. So, this time we looked on the beach first because we'd learned our lesson last time. And then like all these so – like, so, it wasn't on the beach, just couldn't see it. And, you know, there's a lot of expensive boats in Sydney Harbour and the thought was like, is our boat smashing around in Double Bay about to sink Kerry Packer's yacht or something? And how many tens of millions of dollars damage has this thing done since it snapped its mooring? And then someone was like, "Oh no, it'll just be out at sea because when a king tide comes in, it just sucks all the water out and anything there. So that's why all the rubbish ha- like floats out to sea after a king tide. All these things." And we were just like, "Holy shit, this is this is hectic!" Like, so it was just the next level. And the bloke who owned it, whose name it was in was overseas.
0: Notice that he's been gone. Yeah, Both yeah, times. Twice, twice, yeah, twice, twice, Yes, yeah. Are you sure he didn't pay someone to go and cut yeah, it? I'll be like, this not. is going to be well, fun. Let me he, find out what he, the boys will do.
1: He panicked and transferred all his money, which he probably <laughs> didn't have much after running <laughs> the boat, to his, his girlfriend at the time. <laughs> he, he goes, oh, so uh, it was. Anyway, we basically like the four of us just went searching for this boat, looking everywhere. Again, hired a dinghy. And went, got back to Little Sirius and just started to see little bits of stuff from the boat, and then realized I oh, it sunk somewhere. so went back and just kept driving over where the mooring was, and eventually, as the tide went out, we saw it on the bottom of the ocean, sitting like this is a huge boat sitting on the bottom of the ocean. So then it was just like a whole new. It wasn't like we could just tow it back or we'd, we'd found. It was just like, shit how do you get a boat off the bottom of the ocean
0: without telling anyone
1: <laughs> well that was the exact that was the first without yeah without someone finding out or without you know spending half a million dollars I, I don't know like first thought was like we'll just leave it and then so we're ringing people and it was like you know the second time I was just like far out i now i'm super stumped like we, just, we actually went to the pub and sat down and just had a beer and we're like, right, what do we do? And anyway, the first quote we got from a salvage company was $25,000 and we just had a heart attack. Anyway, we ended up finding someone who came for about five grand and the process of floating a boat is pretty incredible, but I won't tell that story now. <laughs> a lot of lessons from that. Yes. It was like-
0: What are the lessons though? Like when you think Jeez. about that, what are the takeaways from that?
1: Well, it was. It was like the first part, though, was like we had a lot of fun learning something new. Like it was almost like learning a new skill. Like we we basically recreated this boat, and then we'd go out with our friends. So it was like we had a lot of fun on it, a lot of laughs on it, and memories and stuff. Big learning is don't buy a boat, hire one. That would be number one. And then the second was just like you know that. <laughs> Like the acting, it's maybe not a lesson, it was just like acting, how do, you, how do you perform under pressure? And it may not seem like it, but at the time it was like I felt it was a seriously bad situation. We had to work out super quickly. And then the first one was just like the power of having a good friendship network. You know, you, you make that phone call and people come running, partly because they want to laugh at you and jeer you up, <laughs> um, but they still come. Um, And, you know, I I think, you know, we're lucky in Armadale that we've got that kind of friendship network where people just jump in and help you out no matter what.
0: And we could do a whole podcast on that, right? Our friendship group in Armadale. And that, I know when the hurricane came and the amount of people that were on board, helping out, doing fencing, like it really is something not to be sneezed at, you know?
1: It's not. Not necessarily everyone has that. But it's, it's worth investing time to try and build it because that was really powerful because of the four of us, we weren't all four good mates. You know, I was friends with one other bloke and then the other two were friends of friends of his that had bought the boat. And, you know, it was, it was mostly our mates who came. There's like 15 people rocked up to help us get this thing in. And, you know, yes, there's the laughter, but the funny side of it's got to be worth staying out till midnight in freezing cold water the laughter wears off after a little while and then yeah it was just sort of I don't know it's just you know it it was it's a real analogy around you know you have your ups and downs like we had the best times and we had some horrendous times but that is an experience and this this is what I love to talk about around experience it's like that boat was an awesome experience and the best parts of it the things I talk about the most now are those really bad times when we're up against it trying to work out how the hell we get a boat off the bottom of Sydney Harbour that weighs something like 10 tonnes. And then what do we do with it when we get it out? Like all these (laughs) questions you've got to, and then it's problem solving. So in your business, in your day-to-day life, shit happens. And no, it, Shit doesn't happen, it happens to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what position you're in, how much money you've got, whether you've got kids, no kids, whatever, shit happens. And it's how you react and how you deal with that and how you get on and do it and choose to make the most of it and then be able to laugh about it, be the kookaburra afterwards going, yeah, that was a funny experience. And I'm just going to put it down to that and experience
0: Mm, Oh, Jonah, I could keep talking to you all day. I really could. And the things that I like, I just wrote a few things down because I was thinking about our whole episode. And I think the things that I'm really taking away from listening to you is invest time in people. It's extremely valuable, whether that's in a workplace for your culture, whether that be in your when you're mentoring someone or up upwards when you with your mentor, with your friends like you've spoken about, with your partner, your children. Invest in the young people of this world, the people, the generation coming through behind us. How important culture is and experiences. I mean, you just wrap that up beautifully at the end. But also, there's a constant theme of hard work and having fun. Yeah, you can do both, and you can do both well. Play hard, yeah. work hard,
1: yeah. Get shit done.
0: Get shit done.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, the other two pieces for that are have a go and that's the experience piece. Like just have a crack at stuff.
0: Fail fast and learn.
1: Yeah, and choose your attitude. Like shit happens, choose your attitude. Everyone, that is one thing you get a choice on. No matter how good or bad something is, you are the only one who can choose your attitude. It's not up to anyone. Everyone gets to influence it. Heaps of people will try and influence it. But you get to choose ultimately what attitude you take and the biggest test of that is when things are really down in the dumps of what's your position you're going to take on it and it is one of the very few things you ultimately get to decide and determine.
0: Full control over and just because you've decided to walk down one road with your attitude does not mean you need to stay on that. If you can become aware, self-aware enough to be like, oh, that's not actually the attitude I want to bring to the table here. You can change it in that moment if exactly.
1: you choose to. Yeah. <laughs> I do do often say this and when uh, I'm choosing a poor attitude, Caitlin, my wife – reminds me that I can choose my attitude. So, it <laughs> <laughs> swings, swings and roundabouts. So,
0: She's going to like take this and, you know, just have it on repeat in the background. Yeah,
1: I'm not saying I choose, I'm always choosing the best attitude, but it is something we get to determine.
0: Absolutely. And it's okay to make a change if you if you can see. I God, I, there's plenty of days that my attitude is not where I want it to be. And I'm also not proud of it. But as soon as I can identify that and, you know, someone might say, well, how do you do that? I one of the ways I do it is breathing techniques on meditation yeah. you know when people say how does meditation help it's so many but for me personally it is the number one quickest way I can flip my attitude
1: yeah definitely 100% I don't do a lot of meditation but I really try and focus on breathing um, which is is a, a, a form of it but there's so much research out there about the the benefits of regulating your breathing and the power of that. And we're trying to work with our our son on that. He just says he hates breathing. So I say, well, no worries, stop. See how that goes for you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's (laughs) Um, do a science experiment. (laughs) But but it's bloody hard. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cold water therapy is pretty good for that too. Uh, I'm asthmatic, so like I really struggle with cold water. When I jump in, I'm just like – can't can't breathe properly, so try and you know do the cold cold shower in the morning and really try and concentrate on my breathing. Doesn't usually work, but I give <laughs> you can
0: it a come crack. out and jump in our pool because there's no heater in it. <laughs> and Armadale this morning was freezing, so you know just we can do some cold therapy out there. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect, <laughs> jump in. <laughs> How did you go? And on that note, Johnny, I don't want to wrap it up, but we really have to. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like the audience to know?
1: Yeah, I suppose it's probably that experiencing like I suppose to El is like give everything a crack. Like I always try and have as many experiences as I can and not get stuck on a plan. Have a plan for your future if that's what you want, but don't be blinkered by it. Like don't miss something because you think you've got a trajectory you've got to follow. And, you know, that for me, switching, you know, getting a job in a hardware was not something I would have put in a plan but happened and I just went with it. Moving to Batir definitely not part of a plan but, hey, opportunity comes up. Life had opportunity came up, go with it. It's like, you know, buying a boat. He probably asked six other people and they went, no way, that's a stupid thing. I was like, why not? What could go wrong? And here we go. So, it was like, you know, don't let a plan get in the way of a of something, of an opportunity that's coming your way.
0: Yeah, and it's it's often I think about too that be strategic but adaptable. Yes, you know, yeah. um, have the ability to pivot. And and that's someone asked me the other day what true wealth means to me, and I was like, oh, great question. I don't know that I have the answer to that. And then I said, personally, it's to be able to adapt and pivot. Which provides flexibility and freedom within my life. Because it really is about writing those ups and downs and taking opportunities. And just because opportunities knock doesn't mean you always take them either. But sometimes an opportunity presents itself and now's not the right time. And that's okay. But just being in a position where you're agile enough to be able to move left or right, up, down, go around, crawl under it if you have to, crawl over it if you need to, whatever it is. But being in that position where you can you can be adaptable.
1: And yeah, it doesn't really matter what happens. It's what you make of that that determines the outcome. The attitude, it's the perception of it being good or bad. It's the fact that you're like, oh, well, here I am. Let's like, let's move on. You know, it's just the ability to be able to adapt and get on and not get stuck on something.
0: Which kind of is when we started in this podcast, it's like, where are you spending your energy and what are you holding on to that no longer serves you? It kind of done a full circle back to that. Yeah. And Jono, we always love to finish the podcast and you're sort of the first guest that's um, come on and talked about laughter, being the kookaburra, but that's why we finish the episode like this. You know, I love to have a laugh with the guests and with the audience, like all the listeners out there have been hanging on for this long listening to us both talk. Hopefully there's been a few laughs along the way. But who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Like, I mean, you know that belly laugh, like that really jolly, like that loud kookaburra laugh.
1: <laughs> I've probably got three.
0: We're not on a time schedule here at all, as Iran can tell.
1: <laughs> One's my wife. She thinks she's hilarious, Caitlin. <laughs> so I laugh at her lack of hilariousness. I'll get in trouble for that. Two is with all of the family. So when our family get together, we we have a lot of belly laughs.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Jono, for coming on and giving up your time and, you know, sharing such beautiful experiences and messages. My cheeks are going to be sore for the next few days from laughing so much but you know i really appreciate it because it does and i've said this on the here before but i can't stress enough it takes courage to come on here and have a conversation with someone not knowing what you're going to be asked not knowing who the audience is and where this is going to go so thank you so much for sharing part of your life and part of your journey with us today
1: thank you ali thanks for asking the good questions it was really enjoyable
0: Did you all feel like you were in the room with us? Jono and I had discussed earlier what were we going to talk about on this podcast and believe it or not, we barely touched on what we said we would talk about. The power of a good conversation that takes you on its own track. I did want to mention though, because we didn't get to that in the podcast, is that Jono will be working with the Thrive by Five campaign. They are doing great work to drive reform for the early years sector People can sign up to join the movement via the Thrive by Five website, which we will also pop in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for today. And I will see you next week for another episode. And then episode next week is going to be on grey area drinking, which is a topic we have not had on Challenges That Change Us yet. So tune in on Monday and we will see you then.